grief. Who, who was using this before I got here? The green giant was preaching here in my pulpit. Here we go. All right. We have started, a, and we're finishing up a series. That's not it. It's called Living in Shades of Gray, and it has absolutely nothing to do with 50 Shades of Gray. All right? Let's keep that in mind, whatever that book is about. Anyway, it has, it's, and what we're talking about is the fact that there are some things in the kingdom of God, some things in our Christian walk that are black and white. They are black and white for everybody. There is no discussion about it. There are a few things in the kingdom that are called thou shalt or thou shalt not. They're the same for everybody, but not many. Most of the things that we do in our life, most of the things we find, most things we encounter are not black and white. They are shades of gray. Some people will feel very comfortable in doing them. Other people will not. How can this be? How can there be shades of gray? Well, this is what we saw last week. It's this way because our Father has granted to us what we call freedom within limits. He sets the limits and then allows us to choose in between those limits and how we're going to live. How are you going to spend your money? Your own personal preferences. You're the three T's of life, the time, the treasure, the talents. Entertainment, you have freedom in here. The entertainment you want to watch, the entertainment that you use. Your hobbies, how you spend your extra time. You have freedom to choose in here. Some will choose it one way, others will choose a different way. Your expenditures, how you want to spend your money. What's important to you. Your father gives you freedom within limits to spend the money any way you would like. Some people spend their money on, uh, on uh, boats or, or toys or their house or if they could spend their money on vacations. However you want to do it. You have freedom in here. It's not right or wrong. As long as you stay within the limits, it's all right. The problem comes when we take our priorities and we make them universal. In other words, my priorities, the way I want to spend my money, the way I want to dress, the way I want to watch the entertainment that I enjoy, guess what? That should be the same for everybody. And if you don't do it my way, you're wrong. Because after all, my way is God's way. And everybody should do it like that. A couple weeks ago, we saw one of those gray areas that current is very, uh, currently is very important, and we call it politics. And over the next 30 days, and thank the Lord, 30 days from now, it should be over for a little while, you will be finding people in the church who will say, you must vote for this candidate or this party, because after all, that is God's way. When in fact, probably it's just your way. They just happen to have your own priorities but you want to superimpose it on everybody. My first church that I went to, they, they had a very interesting, uh, where I was on staff, I was on staff at a church in Napa, California for a while, in Vallejo, California, and it was a different denomination, and they were very, very big on some of the rules of things you could not do. For instance, you could not go to movies. Movies were bad. Now, you could watch movies on TV, but you couldn't go to a movie theater. If you went to a movie theater, that was sin. It's actual sin. You couldn't do it. Of course, they also had rules against um, dancing. Dancing was bad. You can't dance. Husbands and wives, no, no, nobody can dance. You just can't dance. Drinking alcohol, can't drink alcohol. That's a sin. That's bad. You can't do it. 
And then other churches, including even this one for a while, years ago, how you dress for worship. There was a rule. You had to dress a certain way, and if you didn't do it that way, it was wrong. What can you do on a Sunday? Can you, can you play ball on a Sunday? Can you go home and do something else? Or do you have to go home and just rest? And people would make it a rule. How about this? What type of songs can you sing in worship service? We call it the worship wars. They're still being fought in some places. Right and wrong. It is right to sing these songs. It is wrong. To, you know, when I first started in ministry, the only time I could bring a guitar was Sunday night. If I tried to play my guitar Sunday morning, I would have been run out of the church. Sunday morning was reserved for piano and organ, both, and nothing else. Drums on a Sunday morning? Whoa, boy, you didn't do that. You see what happens? We take the priorities, we take the freedom that we have within the limits that God sets, and instead of making it a freedom, instead of just making a personal choice, we superimpose it on everybody and say, this is God's way, my way is God's way. Everybody should. That's why the next thing we looked at, and actually the very first thing, was simply this. In a church, when we're having these disagreements, and we will have gray areas, we do. How you dress, how you spend your money, your entertainment, all these are gray areas. You all choose different ways to spend your time there. Here's how we treat one another. We do this according to Romans 14, because remember in Romans 14, the early church was going through this. The early church from the very beginning, there were people who believed that there was only one day you could worship and others who said it doesn't matter what day you worship. There were some people who said you can only eat vegetables. Others were saying, no, no, you can eat meat. Even in the very early church, people are trying to push their ideas on one another. And it's breaking the church apart. So Romans 14 tells us how to live this way. And I gave you five black and white rules for living in shades of gray. Do you remember what they are? Here we go. First of all, Honor people even if you disagree with them, okay? Even in the church, how you spend your time, your talents, your treasure is going to be different than others. People will disagree with you. Wonderful. Honor them. Don't put them down. Don't try to fix people by imposing your point of view. Don't try to come to them and say, look, my point of view is actually God's point of view, and now I'm going to straighten you out. Our Father has given us freedom within limits. As long as we don't break those limits, you're free. Trust God to do his work. If someone needs a little work in their life over something, trust that your Father, the Holy Spirit, will speak to their hearts. The best thing we can do for one another is what? Help one another hear the Holy Spirit. He does not make mistakes. He does it correctly every single time. If we listen to him, we've got no problems. The best thing that we can do in the church is to help one another hear the Spirit of God instead of trying to be the Spirit of God. Don't flaunt your opinions. Build each other up. If you think somebody's opinion is silly, don't walk up to them and say, your opinion is silly, but I love you anyway. Just use your voice to build them. And then finally was this, and here's where we're going to end it today. Be certain of all you do or don't do it. Now, there it is. That's the one that's going to take the rest of our time here this morning, because what Paul said was, make sure that whatever you do, you are certain you can do it. See, in that first church, was it wrong to go to movies for those people? Yes, for them it was. Why? Because they believed it was wrong. 
They believed it was wrong, therefore it would have been wrong for them to go to movies. Amazing, huh? Can something be right for someone and wrong for someone else? Yes. Nod your little head just like this. It absolutely can. The Bible makes that clear. As a matter of fact, in Romans 14, I'm going to show you three of the passages from Romans 14 instead of reading the whole thing that speak to this very issue that will prove to you and that will show you that it is possible for something to be wrong for one person and right for another. Ready? Here we go. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. You get to choose what you believe about this for you. The next one. Paul says, as as one who is in the Lord Jesus, I'm fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But, read this with me, if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is... Wow. Wow. (laughs) If you think something is wrong, then for you, guess what? It's wrong. Hmm. The next one. So whatever you believe about these things, this is how he ends that whole chapter. Keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And everyone that does everything that does not come from faith is sin. Now, do you understand? Here's what he's saying. In that church, can you eat meat or not? There are a group of people that said, it's no big deal. Other people said, no, that eating that meat is wrong because it probably was sacrificed to an idol. That's where you got it anyway. The butcher shop usually just sold animals that had been sacrificed to an idol. And someone looks at it and says, boy, I'm not certain if I can eat this. I don't know if it's right, to, but you know what? I'm going to do it anyway. Sin. Someone else could take that same piece of meat and go, no problem, and chow down. No problem. Someone else looks at it and says, I just, I don't know. I just, I'm not certain, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to eat it anyway. Sin. How can this be? How can that same piece of meat be sin for someone and not for someone else? Well, it's because of the nature of sin, and we want to spend just a little bit of time here. Okay, sin is not an action. Do you understand that? Sin is not an action. Sin is a decision that leads to an action. Okay, now, are you clear on that one? Sin is not an action. Sin is a decision that leads to an action. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. We decide to do something that we believe to be wrong. Whether or not we actually do, it doesn't matter. It's now sin. We do something, that, that, or we decide to do something that we believe to be wrong. We, we say, this is what I'm going to do. I want to do this. And we think it's wrong. Even if we don't do it, it's still sin. And let me prove it to you from the words of Jesus Christ. This is what happens. It used to be that there was a rule that just said, don't commit adultery. Don't do it. If you committed adultery, the act of adultery, it was sin. Jesus came along and said, but you know what? If you look with lust upon a woman and you're saying in your heart, you know, I really want to sleep with that lady. Whether you sleep with her or not, what does Jesus call it? 
Adultery and sin, why? You decided here to do something you knew to be wrong. Simple. In the movie A Few Good Men, which is a classic, most of you have seen that, I'm sure. At the very beginning of the movie, they're talking back and forth because they're lawyers and they're all involved in this kind of nonsense. And one of the lawyers is defending the guy who is being charged by the army by, for purchasing a bag of marijuana. Except it wasn't marijuana. Do you remember what it was in the bag? It was oregano. Okay? This seaman, first class or whatever, paid some money to somebody, thought he was buying marijuana, and actually it was a bag of oregano. And they're arguing back and forth. Is there really a crime here? The, the Navy still wants to charge him. And his defense lawyer says, charge him with what? Possession of a condiment? He bought oregano. It's not illegal. In the eyes of the law, that's correct. He did nothing wrong. He bought oregano. But in his mind, he thought it was what? And before the Lord, what is he? Guilty. Because it's not the action. It was the decision that led to the action. It's when we decide to do something, whether we do it or not, we decide to do something that we believe is wrong. That's why something can be sin for one person and not for another. Because you believe something to be wrong, but you decide to do it anyway. Where another person could look at that same thing and go, it's no big deal. And it isn't sin. Huh. See, that's why he ends this whole thing by saying, look, you have to be completely sure in your own mind. Which is how we're going to spend the rest of our time. How to be fully convinced in your own mind about whether something is right or wrong. Okay? Here are the steps that you would use when you're taking a look at these shades of gray, these things that, that come up. Can you do it? Can you not do it? Here's how you decide. First and foremost... You need to know the Word, okay? Our entire life is built on the Word of God. This is what Scripture says. Know the Word. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. The first place that I always start in trying to decide whether I can do something, how I should live, is to go to the Word of God. I want to know that Word of God. That's what's important to me. Scripture tells us this, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This is where I live. Know the word of God. Study it. Read it. Understand it as much as you can. Get help in understanding it. And now I'm going to get myself in trouble. Ready? Here we go. To many, the Bible is a, is a mystery book. You look at this book right here and go, oh, my word. What does this thing mean? And, and you start reading it because you think you should. Where? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Okay. It's good. It, it's a good verse. It's a good book. Could I tell you that... that um, let's start someplace else, shall we? Now, here's where I'm going to get into trouble. I'm going to give you a list of the books that I want you to know inside and out. And here they are. First of all is the Gospels. Then the epistles, which is just the letters in the New Testament. Then Psalms, then Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. These books. Now, I'm not saying that the rest of it is unimportant. 
I mean, Habakkuk is a good book. I understand Habakkuk. I know why it was written. Haggai is a great book. I understand Haggai. I know why it was written. I hope one day, as you continue to study, that you would understand what Habakkuk is all about and Haggai and all the other books that you've never heard of, like Zephaniah and the other ones that are tucked in there. They're there. But can I tell you something? Before you really try to understand Haggai, Zephaniah, Malachi, and the others, no one understand these. Read the Gospels over and over and over again and see what was important to Jesus. Read the letters to the churches, the epistles, Paul's letters and Peter, book of Hebrews and James. Read them over and over and over so you understand the issues that were going on in the local church at the time and what God had to say about them. Go to the Psalms. The Psalms are recorded prayers. These prayers were so important to God that he had them written down almost 3,000 years ago. That's how important these prayers are. You will learn things in those prayers. You will find every human emotion that you want right there and what to do about it. Proverbs, which is the book of wisdom. Ecclesiastes, which can be a depressing book, but, but stick it out to the very end, because in the end, it, it's great. The last few verses are fantastic. The rest of the book can, just, can really kind of depress you, because basically what he says is, you know what? Nothing is really worth it here on this planet. And he's right, because at the very end, he says this. The only thing that's worth it is what? God. It's a great book. Here's how you learn to live. Here's how you learn the values of God. These are the things that you fill your heart and your mind with. So when you're faced with a decision, is this right or is this not right? Can I do this or can I not do this? These are the things that I want you to fill your heart, not the few things that God told to them about building the temple or rebuilding the temple in the book of Haggai or the two big questions that are asked in the book of Habakkuk. Because that's what those are about. They're great. Study them. Read them. But first know this. Know the word. Second thing, and we're trying to decide if we can or we cannot do something, is this. Just as important, know yourself. Know yourself. We have an incredible ability to delude ourselves. Don't we? Oh, yeah. Know your strengths and your weaknesses, and especially your weaknesses. Did you know that you had limits? If you hadn't figured this out, did you know that you have limits? Things that you can handle and things that you cannot handle? And if you know what those limits are, oh my word, is life going to be so much better? We saw this last week when my, when my small group is in the, from the book of James. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, he gives birth to sin, and to sin when it's full-born, gives birth to death. Every single person is tempted because there's something broken in me. Some things tempt me because of my brokenness. Some things don't tempt me at all. Not even tempted by it, because that's not in me. I have limits. I have weaknesses. Our Father knows what they are. Take a look at this passage right here. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up against it. He knows what you can handle and what you can't handle. He will never bring to you something that you can't handle. He will always give you a way out, which means when I do sin, guess whose fault it is? Mine. 
I could have dealt with it differently. I know that I could have handled it or my father wouldn't have allowed it. And there's a way out. I just didn't look for it. You have to be honest about your limitations. Some of us have real limitations about money. You shouldn't have credit cards. Don't You just shouldn't. Because you can't handle them. If you have a credit card, you know you're going to max it out. Even though you say to yourself, I won't, I won't do it this time, I just won't do it this time, you know you're going to max it out because you can't stop. Get rid of it. And you say, but, but it would be holy if I could keep my credit card and not use it. Okay. <laughs> Remember I, what I said about delusional? How about this? You can't handle a credit card. Cut it up. Throw it away. If it hurts your credit, big deal. How hurt is your credit now by running up your credit cards to the max? Get rid of it. Some people as friends. You have surrounded yourself with friends who bring you down and you can't handle it. Now you're saying you're in this relationship saying, I will influence them for the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, there's influence going on, but it's not for the Lord. Because you can't handle it. Your need to be light to belong is stronger than your ability to stand up for the Lord and you're going down know your limitation how about a limitation for hobbies maybe your hobby is important to you maybe a little too important maybe it's taking so much of your time and your money that your family life is being hurt Get rid of it. Alcohol is one of the biggest. Let me tell you about what I know about my own limitation there. Um, in my family, it is genetically, we're genetically predisposed to alcoholism. I just know it. My grandfather, who I never met, my dad's dad, he died of uh, alcoholism just after the Second World War. It just destroyed his life, destroyed his family. His whole family fell apart in the 30s when my dad was little. Then it took his life in the late 40s. And he passed it on to my uncle. And my uncle's life was completely destroyed by it. He lost his family, his health, wound up living with his mom for a little while, and then finally he died from alcohol. My brother inherited it. He was a brilliant guy. Best brains in the whole family. But he struggled with alcohol his whole life. You know what? It would be stupid for me to be involved with alcohol. Fortunately, I don't really like the taste of most alcohol. Beard is disgusting. All it is is rotten grass juice. You know, I, I don't understand why people drink it. Just like most wines are just rotten grape juice. I know some of you are venophiles, and, and uh, I have a couple of kids who are venophiles. They really love wine. I pray for them because I hope they understand the genetic predisposition. Fortunately, most wines and alcohol, they, just, they don't even taste good to me. But even if I have to stay, if I make them part of my everyday life, the odds are it's going to destroy me. And I know that. So I just don't make it part of my life. Which is one of the reasons, by the way, in the Free Methodist Church, we advocate an alcohol-free and a tobacco-free lifestyle. Now, it used to be we required it. We don't use that word. We advocate just simply because of this. We know that about 10 to 20% of all the people who use alcohol on a daily basis kind of thing will become addicted and will destroy their life. And a church this size, that means 20 of us would be destroyed. 
10%. We don't do that. Have, I'll share my Diet Coke with you, okay? My iced tea. But that's why we don't have alcohol at church functions. Because we know that some people can't deal with it. And I don't even know what your limit is. I can't look at you and say that's your limit. I don't know. Do you? Do you know your limit? Know it. Don't go past it. The next thing. Know your surroundings. Okay. So we know the Word of God because the Word of God is what speaks truth into our lives, particularly those books that I shared with you. They help you understand what is right and wrong about you and how to live. Then we have to know ourselves. We know our limitations, and God will not push us there. Don't go there yourself. Know your surroundings. And what we mean by this is what is right for me in one situation could be wrong for me in another situation. Did you know that? Now, is that situational ethics? No, it isn't. Good. Very good. Carson, I heard that. No, I'm glad you're back. Missed you a couple weeks ago. Okay, let's take a look. Paul is writing to the church. Again, in the early church, one of the big deals was idols. Idols were everywhere, and most of the meat that you bought in the marketplace was sacrificed to an idol. Some people had no problem with it. Other people did. Here's the advice he's giving to the church from 1 Corinthians. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. Just eat it. The meat, you want a glass of wine, whatever. Just don't worry about it. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered as a sacrifice, this meat that you're looking at, do you know that that this was offered to an idol? What does he say? Don't eat it. No, we're... That's all right. If some unbeliever invites you, then he says, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience sake. Huh. Eat it unless somebody says, that was sacrificed, then leave it alone. It would have been right for me to eat it until someone said, sacrifice, leave it alone. Because somebody's bothered by it. That's why they're telling you. He says, for the sake of the man who told you, and for conscience. Then he says this. The other man's conscience, by the way, not my own. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? Huh. Interesting, isn't it? I can eat this until somebody says it's from an idol and leave it alone. Why? Because it, no, because the person who told me is bothered by it. Their conscience is broken. They're hurt. They say, oh, you can't eat that. You can't eat that. Then Paul says, oh, I'll stick with the vegetables. Then he says this. So whether you eat or drink, and whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that the many may be saved. Is that situational ethics? Well, not really. Not really. The ethic is exactly the same. The ethic is this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That's the ethic that you're living out. But it's going to change what you do. For instance, those first churches when I was on staff, did I believe for a single moment that going to movies was wrong? No. I've been going to movies my whole life, and whether you watch the movie at home, you went to a movie theater, I didn't, it didn't bother me. So I went to movies, right? No. It would have been wrong for me to go to movies. I said, wait a minute, you didn't think it was wrong. 
No, it isn't. So isn't it right for you? No, it's not. Why? You tell me why. What? I would have hurt someone else. There would have been people in my congregation who are absolutely convinced that going to a movie is sin. And they watched their pastor go to a movie, they would not have been able to hear me. They wouldn't have listened to me. And I know that because somebody came up and told me that. In my church. Great man of God. Loved it. He said, Pastor, I just want you to know I would never be able to listen to any pastor who went to a movie. So guess what? No movies. Did I think it was wrong? to? No, I didn't. But I'm not going to hurt him. It would have been wrong for me to offend him in such a way that I could not do my job as a pastor and preach the word. So as long as I was in Vallejo and Napa, I didn't go to movies. Then I became a free Methodist, and now I don't go to movies because who can afford it? <laughs> All right, so we, we know the word. We know ourselves. We know the surroundings to make sure that what we're doing is not offending what we can do. And, what we, and then finally we do this. We keep our life in focus. This is what Paul tells us. Okay, we're keeping our life in focus. That's the most important thing we need to remember here. He says this in Romans 14, for none of us lives to himself alone and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or we die, we belong to the Lord. Here's the point, guys. We don't belong to ourselves. Stop saying, I can do what I want. You're not the boss of me. I can't do whatever I want. I don't belong to myself anymore. I belong to the person who paid for me. And that's Jesus. I belong to the one who paid the price for me. And I've been purchased at an incredible cost. And I don't live for me anymore. I don't live for my own gratifications. I don't live for my own desires. I live for the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's boil it down as simply as we can. When we're talking about whether we can or can't, whether something is right or wrong, any decision that you're going to have to make, whatever it may be, what you eat, what you drink, where you go, what you watch, what you read, who you hang out with, how you spend your money, your hobbies, your treasures, any of this, I belong to the Lord and I live for Him. So, we boil it down because of what Jesus said to us. And he said this. After he was confronted about all the commandments of what you can and can't do and should and shouldn't do, one of them, an expert of the law, tested him with this question, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And do you remember what Jesus said? What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now, as a matter of fact, read that with me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Read it with me. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Carson, when he said law and prophets, what was he talking about? What did the Old Testament, what did the Jews call the Bible? What? The law and the prophets. He just said the entire Bible is wrapped up in those two statements. So it comes down to this. If you're unsure about something that you're doing, how you're spending your money, how you're spending your time, who you're hanging around with, what you're eating and drinking, you ask yourself these two questions. Are my actions consistent with loving God? Are my actions consistent 
with loving both my neighbor and myself. And then if you still aren't sure, what do you do about it? You don't do it. Not until you're sure. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We thank you that you've given such incredible freedom, and yet, Father, there are times that freedom drives us nuts because it means we have choices and responsibility. And sometimes we don't like that responsibility. We want to make other people responsible. Sometimes we want to make it all about you and you telling us what we should or shouldn't do. Father, we want you to tell us in our heart what we should and shouldn't do because you know us. You understand our limitations. Father, would you help us as we walk with you, as we hear you? We just don't want to violate these two rules in anything. We want to love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we want to love the people around us just as we love ourselves. Father, let our lives be a positive life, not a life of being unsure. There are so many great things to do that we're sure of. Help us just to make the decision to do those. And then, Spirit, speak to our hearts. Teach us about the rest. There may be things that we're doing that that you want us to stop. Show us. Help us here. There may be some things that we're not doing that we're unsure that, Father, your Spirit can help us realize that it's okay. Help us. Lead us. In the name of Jesus, we just thank you for the freedom you've given in Jesus Christ and for the help in making the decisions of our daily life. Thank you, Lord. And all the people said... We're going to give you a few moments here in what we call C.